You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demurco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, which, as you've just heard, is produced with the support of Demerco Express Group. I'm Mike King, and you can find this episode and many more on all podcast platforms and on YouTube, along with a bunch of shorter video interviews. And you can also find all this content on www.thefreightbuyersclub.com, where you can subscribe to receive every episode direct to your inbox. A little later, I'll be joined by Jan Tiedemann of Alphaliner, the excellent container shipping consultancy of which he is a head analyst. We're discussing liner strategy ahead of the so-called peak season. We're looking at low water levels on the Panama Canal and what this means for ship deployment. And we're looking at the ramifications of the immense number of new vessel deliveries set to hit the market this year and next. Is slow steaming ahead the clarion call as carriers stop rates collapsing? But first, we're going to hear how retailers are planning the rest of their year, where they're now sourcing product in these days of China plus one, and we're talking inventory levels. But first, we'll be looking at the implications of the new tentative West Coast Docker contract deal agreed after 13 months of wrangling by the Pacific Maritime Association representing lines and ports and the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, which represents the 20,000 plus dockers who keep things moving, well, most of the time at least, at box terminals stretching from the state of Washington south all the way down to California and the huge gateway complex of LA Long Beach. To discuss all these issues, I'd now like to welcome Jessica Dankert, Vice President for Supply Chain at Retail Industry Leaders Association, or RELA as they're known to their friends. She is calling in from Washington, D.C. Jess, how are you doing? I'm great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. We have a labor agreement. It's tentative. Your members, retailers, this must be a relief. Assuming it gets signed, is there an if there maybe? Does this end uncertainty? All these ghost loads by dock workers in recent weeks tied up this supply chain. Great news for retailers, surely. Yeah, we're definitely happy to see the agreement. Uh, you know, it was over a year of negotiations and really started to deteriorate towards the end, uh, which is never good for supply chains. Uncertainty is uh, not good for supply chains to run well. So we're very happy to see the parties come together and agree on that. So hopefully this takes a bit of the uncertainty out of the system. We can see a bit more kind of smooth operation. But to your point, it still does need to be ratified. So we'll be watching that closely, hopefully within the next couple of months, we can have that process go smoothly. And certainly the retailers, our members at RELA are uh, the largest retailers in the U.S. and in North America, and in some cases globally. Uh, and they move a lot of freight, and uh, that's a very important gateway, those West Coast ports. So this is a very important uh, development. We're very happy to see an agreement. Retailers had been calling for government intervention for quite some time, including RELA. Uh, and then lo and behold, we did Get an agreement almost as soon as Julie Su, the Biden administration's acting Labour secretary, started to, I think, in quote marks, assist is how they put it. Presumably, you wouldn't have minded this all happening a bit sooner. We could have been at an acceleration and rather than waiting 13 months or so. 
Yeah, maybe it could have happened sooner, but the process has to play out the way that it's intended. The most important thing is that we got to the tentative agreement. And before we really saw significant levels of disruption, we did see some towards the end. But by and large, I mean, most of the time it was over a year of negotiations, but really largely until kind of the last few months, pretty disruption free generally. But we're glad to have the agreement finally the collective bargaining process is really embedded in American history. So it's kind of the preferred method of reaching the agreement. Certainly government intervention isn't, we don't want that to be the first step to make something happen. But at this point, over a year where we finally saw the negotiations really begin to deteriorate to the point where it was having an impact on supply chains and, and by extension, the broader economy, uh, you know, it just made sense to bring in a fresh perspective. And that was the reason that Rila had called for the Biden administration to uh, get more actively involved in pushing this over the finish line. Now we just need that smooth ratification vote and we'll be uh, good to go. As you say, there was these snarl ups in late May, early June that we go slows at various terminals. This is as all these negotiations between shippers and container lines are ongoing over a long term contract on the Trans Pacific, which is how most cargo on that trade lane moves. Is this helpful? Because spot rates had been increasing in June as we had these disruptions. Now they seem to be subsiding again. Pretty pretty good good news for you, is it? Yeah, well, a lot of uh, you know our members are the large retail shippers, so a lot of their contracts have been locked down at this point, but there are a few outstanding, and also the spot rates do have an impact on just access to that capacity and the kind of larger market forces. I think it's been interesting to see certainly the change in dynamics between carriers and shippers in the contract negotiation process this year versus last year and certainly the year before. Prior to this year, you saw um, more of multi-year contracts that retailers were agreeing to. And then we've seen more of that starting in the fall, really a lot of that renegotiation process as those rates have shifted and kind of uh, reached back closer to pre-pandemic prices or in some cases, even in lower in some cases. So it certainly has an impact on it. And uh, definitely in terms of just kind of the service levels and the broader kind of relationship aspect. It's a positive development to have this uncertainty out of the picture and hopefully we'll create a little more planability around those rates and service schedules and so forth. So you're taking from this then lower rates and better service, right? <laughs> Let's hope so. Okay, I thought you might. Uh, what happens next, Jess? Will we see all this cargo that was diverted to East Coast ports and the Gulf Coast ports and to a lesser extent Mexico and Canada? And let us not forget, in Canada, there is still an ongoing dispute with dock workers represented by ILWU Canada. Does this all go back to that West Coast, though, a lot of this cargo that was diverted? Certainly, I would guess this is all too late for the peak season if we have one. Yeah, it remains to be seen how much is going to go back to the West Coast. I, I honestly don't think that all of that volume is going to head back to the West Coast. A lot of shippers have been waiting on the agreement actually being ratified. And that's certainly too late to affect a lot of the volumes for 2023. But even beyond that, I think the uncertainty around the labor negotiations was certainly part of those decisions of that migration of the cargo volumes to the East and Gulf Coast. But it wasn't the only factor that was playing into that. I think it's uh, a lot around the ports and, and some of the infrastructure concerns there. And even just things like the population patterns and, and the fact that the majority of U.S. population is in the East. And you looked at uh, a lot of that volume has been shifting even before the pandemic. So it's not a new thing necessarily driven by the contract effects or the uncertainty around that. There's been a migration that's been happening and some of these things have maybe expedited some of that process. 
Some of it definitely will come back. There's certain volume that has definitely was you know moved because of that concern around the labor contract negotiation. But that's not the only aspect. So I think some of it comes back, but some of it doesn't. Some of it just continues to stay, you know, the supply chains that have been built up to support that over the last handful of years, that movement to the East Coast or Gulf Coast and the accompanying distribution centers and the freight networks and uh, just kind of the patterns that are in place. It's hard to shake those up again when you don't need to necessarily. Uh, So as long as it remains the same or a comparable cost to move things domestically, I think you'll see a little bit more of a stasis of where things currently are, but supply chain and and retail supply chain is a constantly shifting equation. So you never know, but uh, I I don't see all of that volume uh, ultimately returning to the West Coast. Let's look into 2024 then, Jess. We've also got U.S. East and Gulf Coast labor negotiations. They're already underway. They've made an early start on that. That's between ports and carriers and dockers represented by the International Longshoremen's Association. And that contract is up next year at the end of September. Uh, are you concerned we could see a repeat on the Eastern Gulf Coast terminals with dot worker action as we've seen on the West Coast? Yeah, you know, not as much generally historically. Certainly, we all keep an eye on it, watch it very closely and the progression. Uh, great that they got things started earlier. I think that was a symbolic move, uh, at least as much as anything. Historically, the Eastern Gulf Coast negotiations haven't been quite as fraught as the West Coast. And I think there seems to be a a shared recognition that keeping things running smoothly with those negotiations and with the operations out there will maybe help hold on to some of that volume that's come over from the West Coast. So I mentioned kind of that early start to the negotiations. I think that was at least in part to show that they have a real interest in keeping things running smoothly and not having it be quite so um, the, the level of uncertainty that we maybe saw on the West Coast and really not wanting to jeopardize the cargo volumes that they've won away from the West Coast. So certainly something to watch and and to keep an eye on. We do have more runway there as we're looking ahead to September of next year. Uh, So plenty of time to negotiate that contract, but also plenty of time for uncertainties and other um, uh, unusual events to pop up. So you never know. Keep an eye on it, but I think fingers crossed it'll be a bit smoother. There's never any end to uncertainty in supply chains, is there? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Where are retailers seeing their main risk? I mean, we've we've got a lot of geopolitical turbulence out there at the moment. We've got low water levels on the Panama Canal. El Nino weather system is sort of kicking in a bit and people are varied about where that's going to go. But we're looking at a lot more meteorological turbulence, certainly in Central America. So, yeah, where do you see the main risk, Jess, at the moment when you look globally? Yeah, I think globally, definitely we're in an era of I think big forces affecting supply chains, certainly geopolitical forces, shifting balances, particularly in kind of Asia and Southeast Asia and even into Africa, looking at that, how that impacts sourcing and even the kind of broader movement of goods, the impacts to Europe and movement of goods with regard to the war in Ukraine and how that kind of the ripple effects from that. Uh, So all of these geopolitical forces, it it really does have, you know, ripple effects that go throughout the supply chains. But I think, you know, importantly, and maybe kind of a a dark horse is that the impacts of climate change uh, and some of the climate impacts that we're seeing on supply chain, the Panama Canal water levels is kind of the current, you know, headline grabber that we're seeing, but definitely not the only example of that. And I think smart supply chain leaders are really taking a look at how climate change and and climate and uh, meteorological impacts are affecting supply chains and will continue to do so, perhaps more so 
in the future. And whether that's, you know, rising water levels, whether that's, uh, you know, El Nino effects, whether that's more dramatic weather effects, there are a lot of ways that manifests itself. And that's sort of thing, certainly something to look at. That's broad and macro, but uh, on a, a macro, but more domestic scale, certainly, and even looking at globally, the economy and how that affects consumer spending, I think is really where the immediate and near-term focus is in terms of external risk factors, how that impacts customer bank patterns, but also you know, inventory decisions and things that, that uh, flow out of that as well. I want to come back to those inventories. And I was just thinking as you were running through all these potential risks, uh, my producer, Karen Ball, who'll be listening to this, she'll be nodding her head. She's over in Dakar in Senegal because they've been locked in. They've got a lot of political problems there at the moment. She's been told not to leave the house at various points during June. So she can testify to the, uh, did that geopolitical disruption. Now, the main one that's affecting your members is US and, and China. They're not exactly getting on. We talk a, a lot about this on this podcast about where people are going to move to if they take production out of China, how easy that is to do. It's not plain sailing moving, sorting out of Asia, never mind out of China, is it? Yeah, but I, you know, I think that's a great point you make about China. And um, certainly we've seen the sourcing conversation and sourcing profiles is something retailers are continually reevaluating and evaluating. So it's kind of a, a, an iterative process, but definitely we've seen a lot of manufacturing and sourcing moving out of China and a lot of shifting there, but for various reasons beyond just the relationship between the two countries. I think there's a goal for greater diversity as well because of the risk factors generally. We've seen those shifts in origin and reducing that reliance on one country, whether it's China or otherwise. But you're right, it's not as simple as flipping a switch, a lot of background work that goes into it, evaluations, building those relationships that have been in many cases in existence for years upon years. And it's not just the question of manufacturing infrastructure and skills, which is some country that's not all countries are equal in the sense of having this level of skilled manufacturing to produce the same products that American consumers want to buy. So it's that too. But then looking at kind of the country infrastructure as well, a country can have great factories and very skilled labor, but terrible roads, rail and ports and that's another kind of challenge. So it's a complex question and, and not a, a decision that's taken lightly on the part of the retailers in terms of shifting the sourcing profiles. Certainly the last few years, to your point, have really stoked the fires of that conversation around nearshoring or uh, friendshoring, as uh, we, we are hearing more and more of now. Apparel in particular, we've seen a lot of investment increasing in Central and South America to bring that a little bit closer to the U.S. and to North America. So it'll be interesting to continue kind of watching those trends, but that's where you really see that those impacts of the geopolitical shifting forces and how that kind of rolls out to the sourcing picture. But a really complicated question that certainly our members, you know, the, the folks in dealing in trade, are uh, it, it keeps them busy day in and out. And well, I guess for every business comes up with a different answer when they look at these quandaries. That's right. Yeah, it's so specific to the company that... There's no one answer that's right for everyone. Every company has a different answer that makes sense for their products and their consumer profile and their supply chains and what that means in terms of where you're sourcing things and how that impacts your supply chain and planning. Obviously, for many manufacturers and retailers, you mentioned Central America there, the proximity of Mexico in particular makes it a bit of a first point of reference if you're looking to outsource but be close to the U.S., but it's not exactly without its own risks, is it? Crime is one of them. 
Yeah, that's right. Every country has uh, kind of its own unique set of risks. And certainly when you're looking at manufacturing in uh, Mexico, it's very close and you know uh, allows that extra level of kind of flexibility from that proximity and certainly the positive trade relationships and, uh, and agreements that are in place. But cargo theft is definitely a big concern. You know, we're looking at, particularly within the interior, just significantly higher levels of cargo theft. Whereas I think in the last year, the U.S. had about 1,800 reported instances of cargo theft in Mexico in terms of trucks. It was somewhere north of 20,000. That works out to over 50 trucks being you know, theft incidents per day. And those are just the recorded ones. So it's potentially a, you know, a higher number from that. And even just the kind of level of danger as well in terms of are those armed incidents versus kind of opportunistic thefts that you might see more of in the U.S. So that's a concern as well. That's a piece to it from the safety of, of the drivers and other folks involved, but just kind of the operation of well as well of the supply chain. That's something that has to be factored into that decision-making process and that safety aspect is a big piece to that. But every company, as we were saying, has a, a different risk profile and different answer that makes sense to that sourcing question. And that's one of those elements that gets factored into the conversation. I can imagine that's a very complicated conversation. What's another thing that's very complicated is the the U.S. economic picture. But I'd like to look at that through the prism of inventories, if I may. How would you describe retailer inventories at the moment? Because we do have these mixed messages about what sort of levels they're at. And all of this plays into peak season demand and whether we'll have one, whether we'll have a recession as well, obviously, as a factor. So how is that view amongst retailers about the strength of that U.S. demand and those inventory levels? Yeah, I think the statistics show that kind of nationwide and across the entire industry, we're finally seeing kind of contractions of that inventory number. Among kind of our members and, and larger retailers, I think they've been managing that inventory question that we've been seeing. No secret, it's been a challenge for, I think, throughout the entire industry, having a lot of inventory, that bullwhip effect that we saw coming out of the pandemic and being over-indexed on a lot of inventory. And still, you know, many are still in destocking mode. Certainly taking, I think, a measured approach to inventory management can still. But there is a big upside in having new merchandise. Consumer sentiment and uh, just buying patterns show that consumers are hungry for new merchandise. You've seen a lot of products that have been in a bit of stasis over the past couple of years because of the pandemic and other reasons. So they're hungry for new merchandise to be out there and retailers are responding to making sure that they're getting the products out there that consumers are looking for and excited about buying, particularly as we head into the holiday season. So, you know, we're continuing to see the numbers, inflation cooling a bit and retail sales continuing to show growth. So while the balance of 2023 might not maybe shatter records in terms of the holidays, I think we're expecting a, a strong second half and a, a strong holiday season with not, again, a bumper crop of inventory, certainly from a shipping perspective and an import perspective. I think retail sales will continue to be strong and we'll see a good holiday season. We're going now to a short break and a message from our sponsors. And then coming right up after that, we have uh, Jan Tiedemann, head analyst at Alphaliner. But for now, Jessica Danker, vice president for supply chain at Rela. Thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. Great to be here. This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with DeMurco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. DeMurco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly for Trans-Pacific Lanes. 
with 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India, and Southeast Asia, Demerco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club. Okay, let's look at some of these changes in U.S. cargo flows from a liner strategy perspective. And to do that, I'd like to welcome Jan Tiedemann, head analyst at Alpha Liner. Hello, Jan. Hello, Mike. Thanks so much for coming on, Jan. Okay, we've got this tentative agreement on labor at these U.S. West Coast terminals. Now, this doesn't mean that this is all solved and it's all gone away. It's been dragging on for 13 months, though, so it's good news. During that period, that year plus, that these negotiations have been going on for, can you explain what the rerouting of cargo and ships to the U.S. East Coast and Gulf Coast looked like in terms of vessel capacity or service changes during that period? Or, I mean, and are you expecting some of these changes to now be reversed? Well, in a way, that's not so easy to answer because we have seen a bigger trend of, of cargo, especially Asia, U.S. Uh, routed cargo move away from the U.S. West Coast towards U.S. Gulf Coast and U.S. East Coast ports. And obviously that had to do with the expansion of the Panama Canal that launched in 2016. And then carriers starting to deploy bigger tonnage on the Pacific, which so far always had this imbalance that you could take the big ships to the U.S. West Coast, but you couldn't really take them to the East Coast unless you would go via the Suez Canal, which is a lot longer as a route. And so the balance has changed a lot over the last years. And it's to a degree, it's difficult to say how much of that can be attributed to short-term effects like strike or a port closure or congestion at a port. There was some of that. It was extreme a few years ago when you remember the big queues we had off of LA and Long Beach. A lot of cargo these days and a lot of services move towards the East Coast. And I'm sure some of that happened also in recent times because of the uh, labor unrest we, we've experienced in California, but not so much actually. So I think what we're seeing has been a bigger trend, a longer lasting trend, not so much motivated by these short-term events, but by these ports becoming a lot more competitive by these ports, upgrading their berths, deepening their access channels, being able to accept larger tonnage. And most of that I think is structural. So in a way, the watershed in the continental US, which basically marks on your mental map, the places where it's easier to supply them via East Coast ports with truck and rail from the East Coast or doing the same from the West Coast, that watershed has moved a little further west uh, in favor of the East Coast ports. And these are very different supply chains when you come into the East Coast and West Coast. You're a lot less reliant on these long, long distance intermodal services, rail, road, when you come in from the East Coast, it's more of an all-water service, depending, of course, on what the final destination is. Yes, that's true. And um, specifically with rail being an important mode of transport, we know that there is a limited rail capacity, especially from the West Coast, when you have to cross the Rocky Mountains. Rail is pretty full. And we had, in the last years, we've been talking a lot about delays in shipping and capacity constraint in shipping. But it was capacity constraints, not only in shipping, it was all across the, the supply chains. It was the limited capacity in ports and terminals, the shortage of truck drivers and infrastructure constraints also on, on rail. You talking about limitations on capacity. You mentioned the Panama Canal there and its expansion quite a few years back now. We've got some capacity concerns over the Panama Canal right now. We're moving into an El Nino weather system. 
which typically means dry weather in, in Central America. Even before that weather system's really taken effect, we've already got low water levels on the Panama Canal. What does this mean for container shipping, particularly if maybe if things get a little bit worse later in the year? Well, first of all, the problem as such is nothing new. The Panama Canal historically relies on, on water being fed toward the lakes and canal systems uh, just from rainfall. So it has always been dependent upon sufficient uh, volumes of rainfall in the mountain left and right of the Panama Canal. Of course, uh, now extended dry weather has made that problem worse. And also since 2016, since the new locks are operational, because with every process of locking a ship through the canal, more water is being lost from the system so that the, the drain is literally bigger than it, than it used to be before. So maybe for the first time, this problem that we know that we have constantly experienced is actually getting worse and it's getting to a point where it really becomes a problem for, for liner shipping as well. I know that in the past, it mainly affected the dry bulk shipments because typically a dry bulk ship, you load to its full capacity or you load to a certain capacity, whereas uh, on a container ship, it very much depends on the leg of the voyage you are on. For example, if you're going from Asia to the U.S. East Coast, well, without any intermediate ports, you would probably try to load your ships as full as possible and you have to take the Panama Canal into account when you're going from maybe, say, the South American West Coast to the Caribbean and onto Europe, on that particular leg, which transits Panama Canal, your ships have maybe not been entirely full anyway. But yes, we're moving into a situation where I think it's becoming a problem. And I expect that the liner shipping companies will take certain measures to mitigate that. And one example for doing that could be, yes, we continue serving the East Coast from Asia we move some of the services from the Panama Canal to the Suez Canal. Some of the cargo might also return to the West Coast, but currently it's too early to see these trends. When we talk about moving services to, towards the Panama Canal, well, of course, the downside is you need a few more ships because the distance is a lot longer. However, at the same time, we're currently running into a situation where maybe somewhere at the horizon there is a overcapacity of tonnage, so where the carriers might actually not be too unhappy to be forced to do that, and it might actually absorb some vessel capacity moving to the Suez Canal or even for return from the U.S. East Coast to voyages via the Cape of Good Hope again. So I'd not be surprised to see that. These water levels on the Panama Canal, I mean, I'm, well, I haven't asked you this question yet, but whether there's actually a, a going to be a peak season this year, but let's assume that there is for the purposes of this question. Will this be a factor in how lines plan and, and maybe shippers plan as well around that peak season, the possibility that the Panama Canal might become less usable? Yes, they will probably have to, because like I said, especially on the services which go directly from the Far East to the uh, North American East Coast, and there is no port in between Asia and the Panama Canal. So basically the draft your ship has when it leaves Chinese, Korean, Japanese port that's dictated by the Panama Canal. And typically, these ships could never go through the Panama Canal at a full draft of 16 or maybe even 17 meters. Certain limitations have always been factored in, and it's not a problem because uh, there's a cargo mix. The cargo is not necessarily so heavy, so the ship might be full in terms of TU capacity before it reaches its maximum draft. So typically, that was not so much of an issue. But now with the extended draft and uh, Nobody has a crystal ball. We will we, we'll not know when the rain will fall. 
but currently the situation looks like it could become a bit more uh, problematic. Yes. So we'll see carriers adapting their network because they have little option. As for the line of shipping peak season, this year we'll have to see what happens. We know that this, there's a lot of uncertainty right now on the market. We see that consumer spending is, well, consumers are becoming very carefully with inflation. We see there's uncertainty about what happens between Russia and Ukraine. Well, the war is going on for more than a year now. Many Western economies are still boycotting Russia. Here in front of my door from the port of Hamburg, trade to Russia has come to a standstill. There is also talk about nearshoring again because the supply chain has been for many years quite unreliable, especially over the pandemic. So it's difficult to say whether we'll have a proper peak season this year. Of course, volumes will pick up. That's what they naturally do in the second half of the year. But whether we will have a strong peak season or just a hint of a peak season, that's currently too early to tell. And also we have seen that because shipping was unreliable for an extended period, we have also seen inventories in Europe and the US being built up to have a buffer. So there's not necessarily the need to stock up inventories very quickly if demand should increase again in the Western economies. So there's a question mark definitely on this year's peak, e peak season and how it will play out. How's things looking on the transatlantic trades? And we saw lines moving ships in there last year, particularly towards the end of last year, when rates and demand held up a lot better there than on other trades. Now we're seeing rates on that trade sink. What happens now? The lines start moving capacity elsewhere. Are they cascading somewhere else? And if so, where? Well, there's not really any place to go because the rates are suffering on, on most trades. So moving capacity out of the Atlantic would beg the questions, where would you move it to? I think that in relation to other trades, there is still the situation on, on the Atlantic is still pretty okay compared to other trades, which have taken a lot more of a beating. So if demand continues to wane on the Atlantic and if rates come under further pressure, I would expect carriers to try and keep as much tonnage in that trade anyway, but uh, resort to further measures of uh, slow steaming, meaning uh, slowing down the services uh, or that uh, the an increased number of ships plus a lower fuel bill from slower saving still offers the same number of sailings per week and so that the capacity will decrease or remain at current level even if additional ships come in. The only problem is that there are of course limitations to do that. Going slower, slow steaming has always been uh, the go-to approach if there was too much tonnage. Currently, slow steaming in many trades on many routes is already maxed out. We have gone from just as an example, from 10 years ago on Asia Europe, which used to be a weekly service with eight ships turning in eight weeks, we are now at 11, 12, 13 weeks, depending on the length of the service. And there's not a lot of scope to further increase that. So one additional ship, uh, it's not going to absorb a lot of tonnage. And also the benefits from saving fuel are not as big anymore if you're already slow steaming. So there's very limited scope to do that. But... Carriers will do it anyway. And one of the ways out of that would be indeed to try to move some services, as I said earlier, from the U.S. East Coast, for example, via Suez or restart returning from Europe and the U.S. East Coast to Asia via the Cape of Good Hope. That's something we might see if the peak season fails to materialize. It's getting quite critical now, that capacity situation from a liner point of view. Okay, if we accept that they haven't got big lots of cash that they're sitting on from the last two years to get them through it. But purely when you're looking at those numbers, we've got a lot of new deliveries due this year and, and next year. How will the lines deploy them? And is it going to vary on between the Asia Europe service, for example, and the Trans-Pacific? 
Well, the question almost doesn't ask itself because there's so many ships ordered that the answer to the question, where are they all going to go, needs to be everywhere. So every trade will have to absorb these ships. Also, don't underestimate, there's a lot of capacity nowadays deployed on regional services, ships that we might still think of. I just see it passing by on the Elbe River. It still feels like a big ocean-going ship, and it is. But nowadays, 8,000, 10,000 new ships are vessels that can can be deployed on certain high-volume regional trades, like, for example, in Indonesia or between Southeast Asia, India, just for example. So what every trade will have to have to absorb them. And the thing that makes me at least a bit hopeful is that for the first time, maybe in history or in the history of container shipping, we're coming towards a point where some of the order book might not be for growth, but actually for replacement. Believe it or not, for the last 20 years, the container fleet, the global container fleet has grown by roughly 1 million TU every year. So meaning we are at 26 million TU now. We've been at 6 million TU 20 years ago. And for the first time, I think we're heading into a phase where many of these orders will be for replacement, for cleaner ships, more efficient ships, safer ships, and not necessarily for growth. There will still be growth in the market, but to some degree, growth in container shipping is maxed out because there's no more geographies to expand into. There's not much more slow steaming you can implement because you're already slow steaming. There are no more commodities you can really expand container shipping into because everything is already containerized with very, very few exceptions. So we will see maybe for the first time on a big scale, on a global scale, in the next five to 10 years, a fleet renewal and vessel replacement scheme, which means that the number of tonnage will have to go to scrap. And that could concern ships, depending on how the economy and how the trade fares, which are maybe barely even 15 or, or 20 years old at some point. Do you think we'll we'll see a lot more scrapping then, as you sort of implied there? And uh, maybe are layups an option? Or do you think lines are more likely to go for market share? We might see a bit of a rate war. Well, I guess that as long as they can, carriers will avoid layups. But they will probably try to do, if they see that the market cannot absorb the ship, they will try to find a convenient option out of it. We see that right now there's labor shortage at many Far Eastern yards, especially Korean yards currently have problems delivering ships of time because they have an acute shortage of labor at the shipyards. So probably, as far as new buildings are concerned, some of the bigger carriers will negotiate with the yards. Well, if you deliver these ships half a year late, you know what? We're not really sad about that. You know, that actually fits our plans quite well. Gives us time to stretch that massive order book over a bit of a longer period so that the market can absorb it more. And yes, there will, of course, be scrapping of tonnage. And, you know, in, in the recent past or in the past 10 years, scrapping has always been small in comparison to new building, partly because container shipping as a whole is quite a young phenomenon. And big container ships, 10,000 TU plus, there are simply not a lot of them which are older than 20 years. And for the first time, I think we will reach a point where large mainland container ships reach scrapping age so that there might be 20,000 TU ships coming into the market, but also ships of 12, 15,000 TU leaving. And that was not the case five or six or 10 years ago when these big ships were being delivered, but the only ships that had reached scrapping age were maybe 5,000, in rare cases, 6,000 TU. So that means scrapping a decent number of ships will, in terms of TU capacity, finally start making a much more noticeable impact on the overall supply and demand balance. Can I just follow up on that? You mentioned there are cleaner ships. What's the 
environmental drivers or the regulatory drivers of this move to cleaner ships, just for people who maybe buy freight but don't really follow what, what sort of pressures the lines are under on this side? Well, the thing that currently drives the market is not so much cleaner ships, well, cleaner ships in terms of emissions. That's not what's driving all these orders for new ships. Currently, it's mainly CO2 or the path towards CO2 neutrality, although that's a big ask and that will take a few decades to achieve. But going to ships which have a smaller carbon footprint, which means uh, new fuels like LNG or methanol, which will not cure everything overnight, but you at least you need the tonnage which is capable to run on these cleaner and lower carbon fuels. And the big battle actually that the carriers will be facing is to get their hands on sufficient quantities of these new fuels. Because just replacing heavy fuel oil with LNG or replacing heavy fuel oil with methanol, yes, that makes shipping cleaner and that reduces CO2 emissions by a bit. But to take the next step and to become really carbon neutral or even low carbon, I'm not even talking about carbon neutral, but low carbon means that you will have to produce these fuels in a sustainable way where the production of the fuels captures at least as much carbon from the atmosphere as burning these fuels later emits again into the atmosphere. And that's going to be a big ask because the question remains, where is all the energy going to come from? So it's not necessarily a fuel problem or a fuel challenge. All these things, I think, from a technical point of view, are fairly manageable. You can build these ships. They are 10, 20% more expensive. The carriers have the money to do that right now. But the big question remains, where is all that energy going to come from in the long run? Can we produce it all with wind or solar? Or do we need to resort to nuclear? And you know, opinion will be very divided whether some people will see nuclear as green. Yeah, no problem. Or others will say, no, 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 no. Nuclear is, is an evil source of power. We, we cannot put that into our energy mix. So that's actually the discussion that, uh, or one of the discussions that liner shipping is facing. And then regardless of what kind of fuel you are using and what it is emitting, the point is to have ships which are in the first place more energy efficient, which means bigger ships, more advanced hull forms, ships that are optimized for slower sailing speeds, ships that can squeeze more container on the same size of vessel so that the per TU consumption goes down irrespective of that energy comes from heavy fuel oil, methanol, LNG, or any other alternative fuel. That's basically the low hanging fruit to a degree. Finally, Jan, I just want to just take you back to slow steaming again, if I may. And just as an aside, I sometimes chuckle when I see carriers who we know are trying to cut capacity because we're in a down market, sometimes saying that they're actually slow steaming because it's going to save emissions when even sometimes when they're going around the Cape of Good Hope to save money and take out capacity on, on those long Asia Europe routes rather than paying Suez Canal fees. But from a shipper's point of view, or from a container line customer's point of view, does this slow steaming create the possibility that we might see more reliable services. Does one thing lead to another, I think, is what I'm asking you. Yes. So, so by default, it should be because the slower you go, the more wiggle room you have in your schedules and the more does the ship have the technical ability to speed up again if it's late, if it falls behind schedule to catch up. If you're sailing at 20 knots and you have very tight bursting windows, it is difficult to catch up once you have encountered delay somewhere along the route. There's not a lot of scope. Now, if you're sailing at 14, 15 knots, there is, of course, a lot more wiggle room in the schedule and it's easier to arrive within the predefined burst window. However, you know, when I talk to cargo owners, they care less and less about the transit time port to port. 
what's important for them is out of the door at the factory, into the door at my distribution center, wherever that will be, whether that's in Chicago or in Hamburg, whether that's at the seaport or at an inland destination. That's way more important for them, at least. And shipping is just one part of the maritime transport lag. It's just one part of that equation, which is important to them, but it's not the only one that's important. And even if slow steaming improves schedule reliability, we'll still face uh, problems on infrastructure constraints. You know, uh, some ports have seen an underinvestment and have not expanded fast enough. Especially in Europe, it's difficult and slow. It's a cumbersome process to expand rail to improve rail access to ports, for example. Also, wherever you go through all industries and the service industries right now, at least in Europe and I think also in the US, we have a problem of the shortage of staff and skilled labor, whether it's truck drivers, train drivers. Uh, over here, if I go to work in the metro, a lot of the trains are just not going because there's no train driver. And it's the same with, with freight trains. So, yes. Of course, reliability will be king. Slow steaming helps to accomplish that. But infrastructure and staff shortages also on the land transport will remain a bottleneck nevertheless. German trains have having problems with their metros. Who'd have thought? Um, you raised one question there. I'll have to follow up on Jan. You mentioned that a lot, a lot of times that cargo might be delayed because of problems beyond the port. We've now seen shipping lines investing beyond the port, or at least some of them. Maybe this resolves it, or maybe not. Well, of course, the question is whether for the shipping line, it's a strategic move to go into end-to-end logistics or whether it's just because they're sitting on a pile of cash right now, which they have to invest somewhere. And maybe in reality, it's a bit of both. It's a mixture of both. Um, Of course, they are trying to get parts of the transport value chain under their own umbrella to have A, more control of it, B, to make their product stickier because the customer is is more difficult to get out of a long-term contract when the carrier does everything door to door from you and see also to, to make additional money from that and, and participate in a larger part of the value chain. At the same time, when it comes to tonnage, for example, you can easily spend a billion or two on new ships and you will have them in two years. But the shipping lines will learn that once you have spent a lot of money to buy up existing infrastructure, once you have to get into the build, into the game of strategically building your own infrastructure, expanding your terminal, you know, where actually the dredgers and the digging machines have to get going, that's something even a lot of money cannot achieve overnight. If you want to build a new container terminal, say, for example, in the greater New York area, first of all, it would be very, very expensive to do that. But even if you had all the money in the world, you couldn't snip your fingers and then uh, have it in two years. That would probably a 10-year planning process with environmental reviews, a lot of nimbyism, you know, and that's a challenge that carriers will face, uh, that anybody will face with trying to solve these bottlenecks and alleviate them and invest into infrastructure and these parts of the supply chain. But irrespective of whether that's a carrier doing that or somebody else. Jan Tiedemann, Head Analyst at Alpha Liner. Thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the DeMurco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.